KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, KPFK Sports. The Nation Magazine sports editor Dave Zirin will talk about what he calls the Kaepernick effect, how an NFL quarterback who had never been an activist made taking a knee the symbol of protest against racial injustice, and how hundreds if not thousands of young athletes followed his example and took a knee at their own games during the national anthem. Many of them, often high school students, women as well as men, faced ostracism, condemnation, death threats, and more. Dave Zirin talked with dozens of them, wrote about them in his amazing book, The Kaepernick Effect. It's our featured fun drive thank you gift on this hour. Alan Minsky will be in to explain. But first, today's political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Always good to be here. Well, on the long-suffering reconciliation bill, we have come to an agreement. That's what Chuck Schumer announced on Tuesday. He also said, we want it done this week. He also said, everyone is going to be disappointed in certain things, but everyone is going to be glad about certain things, close quote. How disappointing does it look at this hour? How glad should we be? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the uh, original proposal of $3.5 trillion, which was the proposal that uh, Joe Biden agreed to, Bernie uh, Sanders initially proposed $6 trillion, that the initial proposal of $3.5 trillion will be more or less cut in half, possibly to $1.75 trillion, which is exactly half of uh, 3.5. Now, there is a report out, which Joe Manchin has denied, that uh, says that Manchin has said, if it doesn't get down to 1.75, he will leave the Democratic Party. Wow. Uh, uh, social science uh, nostalgics <laughs> may recall that uh, the great Albert O. Hirschman said, when you have trouble with an organization, your two options are voice and exit. Uh, in this case, Manchin is threatening to uh, exercise both uh, <laughs> options. Uh, but even if, as he says, that that's untrue. At this point, the Biden administration is saying they don't think they can get agreement from the uh, uh, stick, uh, from the holdouts, uh, Manchin and Cinema, if it's anything greater than 1.9 trillion. Now, we still don't know how exactly they're going to go about that. Uh, many of the Democrats on the Hill, the progressives, are saying something I've, I think voiced perhaps first on this show many weeks ago, which is that just fund the first five years, uh, which cuts the, uh, you know, the ultimate literal bottom line in half and uh, run on the continuation of those programs in 2024. Great uh, idea. Yeah. So the, I think there will be some of that. There'll be other stuff that's cut back. The Biden administration is now saying, given the uh, imperative to cut back, they don't think they can fund, let us say, uh, making community colleges tuition free. On that, they they seem to have uh, given up. Uh, but so we don't we don't really know the ultimate uh, content of the programs that uh, would be encompassed under this bill. Nor do we know uh, anything about how it's going to be funded. 
this is an issue on which Joe Manchin was uh, rel relatively okay. He was for raising the taxes on corporations and the rich, but he is not the only loose cannon uh, in the democratic arsenal, uh, or shall we even say the anti-democratic arsenal. There's also <laughs> Kristen Cinema of Arizona, who uh, apparently, uh, as we speak on Wednesday afternoon, uh, essentially has said she's completely against raising taxes on the rich and corporations, uh, which are certainly funding her very well these days, we should add. Um, which is uh, forcing the Democrats to come up with some other equivalent schemes. Maybe, you know, some of them are not bad, like uh, uh, taxing stock buybacks, which are essentially a way that CEOs can enrich themselves. But, you know, uh, we don't know. Uh, what we do know is that um, President Biden wants to have the deal in hand uh, when he goes to the Global Climate Summit, uh, uh, which he has to be at by October 31st, which doesn't give the Democrats a heck of a lot of time. Uh, and what we do know is that there are people uh, around the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Virginia, where the election is November 2nd, Terry McAuliffe, who says that he wants to be able to point to uh, you know, the infrastructure bill and other good things that Democrats have enacted uh, before November 2nd. So there are, there are real deadlines uh, and we shall you know, have to see what the Democrats can come up with given the ridiculous set of strictures that uh, Manchin Cinema and a handful of House members have placed on them. There's also you know, some question as to uh, whether cinema will support even uh, allowing uh, Medicare to negotiate uh, drug prices down to anything remotely like what the rest of the world pays for prescription drugs. Yeah, we're, we're told that cinema has skipped meetings of the Senate Democratic Caucus to discuss these matters and their political strategy. Um, and the New York Times had a big feature story about her over the weekend where they suggested maybe she'll become an independent. Um, this seems ominous. Well, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think politically she falls into a, a kind of category where we might lump Donald Trump, that is to say, sociopathic uh, narcissist, or if you prefer, narcissistic sociopath. <laughs> Uh, either way. Uh, but, you know, like Trump, she seems to think that this is somehow in some peculiar way all about her, uh, which is a perception. Now, Trump has convinced a lot of Republicans that reality is all about him. It's not clear to me that cinema has actually convinced anyone other than herself uh, that this is all about her. But actually, if you think about it, if you're a sociopathic narcissist, you only have to convince yourself. And so here we are. The other big news in Congress is that the Democrats' voting rights bill is coming up in the Senate uh, uh, as today. We're speaking on Wednesday. For the third time, Republicans are deploying the filibuster to block it for a third time. Uh, this once again puts uh, abandoning the filibuster, uh, uh, suspending the filibuster uh, back on the table. And there is one new development. Angus King, independent from Maine, has spoken out very forcefully on the importance of the voting rights bill and thus of ending the filibuster, at least for this bill. How significant is that? 
Well, it's it's a it's a good sign, but you know, uh, necessary but not sufficient, as the saying goes. Uh, the other thing that's different uh, this time around is that this bill was actually drafted and put together by the above mentioned Joe Manchin, and it's mainly Manchin who uh, has to reverse field on this, and then of course we have to deal with our favorite sociopathic uh, narcissist uh, and see if she's willing to scrap the filibuster, which he has not been thus far, uh, to permit the voting rights bill to pass on a straight party line majority. We, uh, we have to talk about Virginia, which, as you said, is electing a new governor on November 2nd, less than two weeks. Virginia, of course, has turned blue for the last couple of election cycles, one of the great transformations of our, of our time. Uh, and you, we've been saying here for many weeks that Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe should win, but suddenly the polls show a, a dead heat. Uh, the New York Times explained on Wednesday that contests for governor in Virginia have long been a barometer of the national political mood, especially a year into a new presidency. For Democrats, the stakes have never seemed higher than they do right now. A defeat in Virginia could deal a devastating blow to the party's confidence heading into next year's midterms and to its strategy of running against Trump, even though he's not on the ballot. Um, the Democrats are pulling out all the stops. So Stacey Abrams went to Virginia. Barack Obama is on his way to Virginia. What, what can you tell us about Virginia? Well, historically, in the last uh, decade, decade and maybe even decade and a half, Democrats have racked up huge majorities in uh, Northern Virginia, which is basically the suburbs of Washington, D.C., only to do steadily worse in the rural uh, hinterlands uh, outside of those suburbs. And, you know, that, that's happening again. The question is, will uh, the Democrats uh, win enough moderates in the suburbs? Uh, but the question also is how much Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, can excite the uh, Democratic base. He's a, a throwback. He uh, is an old Clintonian. Uh, all the fundraising appeals that pop into my uh, inbox from him come from people of Clintonian vintage, like James Carville. Uh, oh, there's a bit of a sort of musty museum aspect to Terry McAuliffe. And it, it's worth noting, and I thought this was kind of notable at the time, that when he uh, declared his candidacy, again, this is it was right after... Uh, the, the 2020 election, which left progressives exhausted. And, and no one really came forward uh, in the Democratic primary to say, well, I'm really kind of the new face of the Democrats. I represent the new Virginia. Uh, here was Terry McAuliffe, who was governor before, who was governor um, uh, between uh, eight and four years ago. But there were term limits in Virginia that you can only serve, you can only serve one term consecutively. So McAuliffe was on a I'm back, uh, uh, you know, kind of campaign. Uh, There's some interesting, some interesting developments. Um, Democrats believe they have been helped by the absurd uh, anti-abortion new law in Texas. They're warning that if the Republicans take over, despite clearly the fact that uh, the Republicans don't even want to raise the issue that, that such a thing could happen in Virginia, uh, that the Supreme Court might gut Roe v. Wade. 
And for the first time, you, you see Democrats raising this issue everywhere and Republicans who historically try to uh, turn out their base by saying how anti-choice they are have been relatively silent because they know this is a loser uh, of an issue if they, uh, if, if they make it. So we shall see uh, where, where this all goes. And I don't doubt at some level that McAuliffe's difficulties have something to do with the inability of the Democrats in Washington to yeah. uh, pass their program. Yeah. And on the other side, it's not such a fraught campaign for the Republicans. They're running a guy who's never run before, Glenn Youngkin. Uh, so even if he loses, it's not like a bellwether that they're sinking. Um, he's an interesting, he's trying to do an interesting thing, which is not to be a total Trumper, to bring moderates, of course, Virginia has lots of moderates, along with the Trump party. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting test of whether that succeeds uh, that will have implications for other Republican candidates in, in other purple states, it seems like. Sure, absolutely, in purple states and in swing districts, uh, if there are any sur that survive the current wave of uh, redistricting. Uh, yeah, uh, because in order to win uh, swing states or uh, swing districts, uh, a Republican is going to have to get enough of the absolutely insane Republican base and some, you know, traditional old uh, Republicans who we may not agree with on issues, but it weren't clinically nuts, uh, to still vote for them. Uh, and we shall see if Youngkin can, uh, uh, can pull that off. And then there's Texas. Uh, Texas does not have an election this year, uh, but uh, they are going to have an election in 2022, like the rest of America, election for their governor. And a recent poll found that only 42% of registered voters in Texas say Republican Governor Greg Abbott deserves to be reelected. This is, uh, you know, uh, a, a green light to the Democrats to pull out all the stops and see if they could be, elect a governor of Texas, something they haven't done for a couple of decades, but which they used to do all the time. Greg Abbott, uh, you know, has signed this bill empowering vigilantes to turn in abortion providers. He, as we talked about last week, banned private businesses from requiring COVID vaccinations of their employees. Uh, I had forgotten that he announced Texas would build its own border wall. Uh, so he is kind of pulling out all the stops in a different direction, a direction that doesn't lead you to a majority of voters uh, in Texas. According to the polls, this is the Quinnipiac uh, University poll. Um, they've been polling Texas since April 2018, and this is the first time that Greg Abbott's approval rating has been underwater. Um, it's getting interesting in Texas. It's getting interesting in Texas. And uh, what we need to keep in mind is that insane as some of those uh, Greg Abbott policies and laws appear to us, he is not the far right of the Republican Party <laughs> in Texas. They, they are uh, uh, Trumpian, uh, I think the phrase is avant la lette. They uh, <laughs> uh, are more Trumpian than thou, whoever thou may be. And uh uh, you know, I mean, this is this is partly what happens when you know you are representing a political party that has really uh, gone completely off the rails, and uh, the, the the 
emphasis that Texas Republicans have placed on voter suppression laws and on controlling uh, redistricting in a gerrymandered way is entirely a reflection of the fact that they know they're losing the battle of public opinion in Texas. Texas, uh, the only parts of Texas that have grown, we know from the census, are the metro areas, which are getting uh, uh, people moving from other parts of the United States who have, haven't drunk the right-wing Texas water yet. Uh, also, uh, longtime uh, Latinos registering to vote. The cities are getting more diverse. Uh, they are, are driving the state in a democratic direction. The heavily white rural areas of the state are either uh, sort of stagnating in terms of growth or actually declining. And so, you know, the, the, these are folks uh, with uh, the old image would be their fingers in the dike. Uh, and, and we need to view the voter suppression uh, as precisely an expression of that. And let's just remind our listeners that gerrymandering does affect house districts and the state legislature. It does not affect statewide races for no. like for the governor and for the senator and for the president. Right, so right. gerrymandering will solve is, is a tactic for some of the Republicans problems. They need the voter suppression overall for the statewide races, but of course, making it harder to vote, uh, closing polling places, uh, uh, making the advanced voting shorter, making voting by mail harder. This also affects those white rural counties, which uh, uh, have a lot of Republican voters in them. So it's a two-edged sword in some ways. It is. It is. And, you know, keep in mind that there are states that are narrowly Democratic on a statewide level where the Republicans are uh, in control of the legislature, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and clearly, I think the best we can hope for Texas in the, for, you know, in the near future is uh, winning the statewide offices, uh, particularly governor, uh, attorney general and such, though uh, the Republicans are going to really sort of hardwire the districting. So winning the legislature would be probably a bridge too far, unfortunately, for, for a while. Now, Greg Abbott has been endorsed by Trump. Nevertheless, these far right wingers, uh, uh, more ho holier than thou, uh, avant la lettre, um, have been working to raise doubts about whether Trump is sincere in endorsing Greg Abbott. And indeed, Trump has not told them he is sincere. Uh, Trump has been pushing Abbott and making it seem like, well, maybe he'll withdraw his endorsement if Abbott does not uh, support an election audit bill. Uh, in the current special session uh, of the Texas legislature. So far, I don't think uh, Texas Republicans have passed one of those Trumpian uh, audit bills. So uh, Trump himself is is toying with Greg Abbott here in, in a way that I think we have to enjoy. Uh, yeah, and, and of course, you know, the, no the notion of doing an audit in a, in a state that Trump plainly won <laughs> Uh, it just shows Trumpianism kind of having circled around and is now gnawing on its own tail or some <laughs> such uh, metaphor to describe uh, just, just quite how far they're going. Uh, well, and let me just emphasize here, um, Biden lost Texas famously only by about 630,000 votes in the state with 17 million uh, voters. Biden got the highest percentage of the vote for a Democratic presidential candidate in Texas history since Jimmy Carter. Uh, and, you know, Biden 
is was not Mr. Excitement during this campaign. Uh, oh, is- so you can see why the Republicans are nervous. Well, and let, you know, their own audit in Arizona uh, basically showed that Biden did better than the uh, uh, the, the statewide uh, uh, victory totals that they were contesting. So uh, <laughs> maybe they have uh, heard a faint alarm bell ringing if they uh, if they pursue this. And I, I, I have no uh, hope that Biden can somehow be shown to have won. Texas, but you know he might he, he might pick up some more votes this time around, and that wouldn't look so good. So the question is, who are the Democrats going to run against Greg Abbott, given his obvious uh, weakness? Uh, I was amazed to see that Matthew McConaughey is being mentioned by you know the great mentioner uh, as a potential challenger. He is born in Texas. He went to the University of Texas. He starred in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, nobody really knows what his politics are, um, or even if he would run as a Democrat, he might, I suppose he might run as some kind of independent. The obvious one is, of course, Beto. Beto narrowly lost when he challenged Ted Cruz. Beto got 48% in 2018, which was kind of a victory, uh, uh, um, sim- a symbolic victory. And he brought a lot of down, uh, down-ballot uh, Democrats into victory as a result. So Beto has not announced, but we're, we're uh, expecting that he, that he will announce. Uh, what do you make of, of the field of opponents? Well, I think Beto has a strong uh, claim uh, to uh, be the Democrat who opposes uh, Abbott uh, next year. Uh, you know, McConaughey is anybody's guess. I have no idea what he plans to do. I do know that if he plans to run as an independent and splits the anti-Abbott vote uh, with Beto, that would not be a good thing. That would, in fact, be a bad <laughs> thing. Right. So we shall see. But presumably, if 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 he feels strongly enough about this that he want about getting rid of Abbott, he would uh, not choose that course. But then we're not entirely sure what he does feel strongly about. Harold Meyerson, thanks for talking with us today. Always great to be here, John. Take care. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The pipeline company bringing crude oil from the Alberta tar sands across northern Minnesota paid Minnesota police for arresting and surveilling hundreds of protesters trying to stop the pipeline this past summer. The company Enbridge picked up the tab for police wages, training, and equipment, and let county police know when it wanted demonstrators arrested. Despite massive demonstrations along the pipeline route last summer, Joe Biden refused to take action to block Enbridge Line 3. And last week, the pipeline began carrying the most polluting crude oil in the world across northern Minnesota near the Uh, Boundary Waters Wilderness Canoe Area and near Native American Reservation land to the Port of Superior, Wisconsin, at the tip of Lake Superior. Enbridge paid $2.4 million to local police in northern Minnesota, according to documents The Guardian obtained through a public records request. Enbridge paid for officer training the wages of police officers surveying demonstrators, as well as their overtime, benefits, meals, hotels, and equipment. Police arrested more than 900 demonstrators opposing Line 3 for its impact on climate and indigenous rights, according to the Pipeline Legal Action Network. This has been your Minnesota Moment. 
a special feature of this broadcast. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for sports talk. Remember how in 2016, an NFL quarterback named Colin Kaepernick began a series of quiet protests on the field, at first refusing to stand for the national anthem. He was protesting against the epidemic of police shootings of African Americans. And remember how his action then taking a knee five years ago became the symbol of resistance to racial injustice in America. That political movement in sports is the subject of a new book by Dave Zirin. Of course, he's sports editor for The Nation and host of our sister podcast at The Nation, Edge of Sports. He's written many books, including A People's History of Sports in the United States. He's been a regular guest on MSNBC, CNN, and ESPN. His new book is called The Kaepernick Effect. We reached him today at home in Washington, D.C. Dave Zirin, welcome back. Oh, it's great, great, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Colin Kaepernick was kicked out of professional football for taking a knee, but hundreds, if not thousands, of young athletes followed his example and took a knee at their own games during the national anthem. Many of them faced ostracism, condemnation, and even death threats. And all of that came in a couple of years before George Floyd was murdered by a cop in Minneapolis. So, Let's start this story at the beginning, August 2016. The San Francisco 49ers were about to play the Packers. This was a preseason game. Who was Colin Kaepernick at that point? Colin Kaepernick at the time was the backup quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, He's coming off injuries. There was a new coach in town. It wasn't the best point in his career for the quarterback who only a few years earlier had led the San Francisco 49ers to the Super Bowl. Colin Kaepernick was also somebody who was absolutely disgusted by the state of the United States and particularly the issue of police violence. Uh, Like many people in that summer of 2016, he was becoming really plugged in to what was taking place in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. If you remember over that summer, there were these viral videos of uh, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile uh, being killed by police. Philando Castile uh, meant a lot to me in particular because that happened in my hometown of St. Paul. In fact, Philando Castile went to the same high school that I did, St. Paul Central. You remember the story. He was stopped for a broken taillight. His girlfriend was next to him in the front seat. Her four-year-old daughter was in the back seat. The cop then shot and killed him while his girlfriend screamed and recorded the whole thing on cell phone video. It was the next month that Kaepernick started his symbolic protest. Now, was he well known as a political activist at that point? Uh, No. And this was at a time where dozens of athletes were starting to speak out, really starting in 2012 after the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida. That's really, really where you start to see this wave of athletes start to use their hyper-exalted, brought to you by Nike platform to say something about the world. And Colin Kaepernick had yet to be counted among those legions of athletes who were starting to speak out. And yet in that moment, August 2016 preseason game, 
Colin Kaepernick was being asked, as they're always asked in the NFL, to stand at attention for the national anthem. And he just had enough. And so what he did without sending a tweet, without sending a press release, without sending so much as a carrier pigeon, decided that he was just going to sit behind his teammates on the bench with his towel over his head. And no one even really noticed that he was doing this. And it might have even become just a one week story, except a reporter named Steve Weish, who's a a terrific sports writer. He noticed what Colin Kaepernick was doing and made a beeline for him. And he had known Colin since Colin played in college and uh, had been following his social media and had noticed that Colin had been posting some stories about these police shootings. And so he went up to him and said, hey, what was up with you not standing for the anthem? Can you talk to me about that? And that's when Colin responded like a like, like a dam breaking and him saying, you know, there there are people dead in the street and police officers are getting away with murder. And that really started the the whole process uh, that led to him taking a knee and all these other athletes taking a knee. Uh, It was really that moment. And the response was pretty quick, uh, too. Donald Trump at that point was running for president. What did he say about Colin Kaepernick? Well, his first comments was that he should find another country to live in, which, of course, to his base, you know, you hear Donald Trump saying that about a black quarterback in the National Football League. I mean, he's basically saying, go back to Africa. I mean, it's a highly racialized statement and has been in this country uh, for, I mean, frankly, like 150 years yeah. uh, as white racists have dealt with black discontent. And, you know, Trump sees, seizing on this controversy and turning it into an election issue. What it did was it, it polarized and it divided and it turned what Colin Kaepernick was doing into a cause celebre on the left. And it turned him into an object of, of relentless hatred on the right. And then there were kind of the liberal liberals in the middle, especially the NFL officials. Their line was, I support his goals, but not his methods. And what happened to Colin Kaepernick's career as an NFL quarterback? Well, first, we got us before uh, the end of that season and everything that's occurred in the years since then. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, we got to say, spent that 2016 season taking a knee before every single game, whether they were at home in the friendly confines of the Bay Area in San Francisco or whether they were on the road in very hostile environs in the American South or you know other places. I mean, let's remember what Malcolm X said about the American South really starts at the Canadian border because uh, one, one of the most vociferous anti-Kaepernick reactions was in Buffalo just south of the Canadian border. So Colin Kaepernick basically engaged in a four-month protest against police violence and racial inequity. And he also started this process of taking a knee, a gesture that he uh, conjured with a, a former NFL player and Green Beret named Nate Boyer. And it was Boyer's logic who said, he said, you know what? People are so angry at you for sitting during the anthem. Why don't you try taking a knee? Because that will show dissent, but also proper respect. And they won't be able to say, oh, he's doing this against the troops or he's doing this because, you know, he's a anti-American zealot. But their calculation was very off because once he took a knee, it immediately became something more iconic. And Colin Kaepernick was on the cover of Time magazine. And it also bequeathed a language to a generation of young activist athletes that, 
they could follow this lead, that they could take a knee as well. That if they were upset about the world, here was something concrete that they could do. And the great thing about your book, The Kaepernick Effect, is that it's mostly not about professional athletes. Chapter one is not about the NFL. It's about high school. And I have to say, it's not easy to find out what's going on at American high schools. You did find out. You found out a lot. For instance, you found out what was going on in Brunswick, Ohio. Yes. I spoke to a young man named Rodney Axon. And first, I got to say, I started writing this book at the start of the pandemic. And it's really hard to talk to high school students on the phone normally. It's hard for me to talk to my own 17-year-old daughter on the phone. Like if I call her up, she'll say, what, is it an emergency? And I'll say, no, I was just calling. And she'll say, oh, text next time. It's just a whole different way they have of communicating. Phone calls are strictly for if you're trapped underneath a large piece of furniture. But what, what I found was that these young folks were really bored. They were home. You know, everybody was on shutdown at the start of the pandemic. We all remember what that was like. You'd be scared to venture out of the house for vegetables and fruits. And here were these young people bored out of their minds. And here I am, this writer, calling them, tracking them down. And they were just ready to talk. Hmm. So th- they really opened up to me. And I'll never be able to express my gratitude enough for how open they were about what they went through. And one of those folks was Rodney Axon in Brunswick, Ohio. And he told me a very personal story about a family, his family growing up in Cleveland and his family deciding, let's move to this predominantly white suburb of Brunswick where it'll be safer, there'll be better schools, better opportunity. You know, sounds a lot like something we used to call the American dream. But what he found being out in Brunswick as one of the few black people and one of the few black families is that he was subject to harassment by police. He would hear people use racial slurs. Uh, When he was on the football team, his own teammates would use the N-word very casually. I should be clear, his white teammates would use it very casually. And he had just had enough. And when you couple that with the existence of a movement and then add the special spice of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, he saw something that he could do. And when Colin Kaepernick took that knee, everything just clicked with Rodney Axon. And he knew what he needed to do. So he was the first person to take a knee after Kaepernick. And the backlash was very intense and very severe. I mean, so bad that uh, he got death threats. His family got death threats. Death threats came into the school. And he started walking his uh, little sister to elementary school every morning because he was worried about her personal safety. And I think one of the things about Rodney that's so remarkable is that Despite going through all of that, despite being then ostracized by his team, despite the fact that his coach didn't have his back, I mean, he he has no regrets whatsoever. None. Uh, The kind of the world capital of high school football is Texas. And you found out about Beaumont, Texas, about a guy named Jalen Parkerson. Oh, yeah. I just was talking to uh, Jalen's mom just the other day. And I got to say, one of the rewarding things about this book has been keeping up with the people who, who did this work. Um, Jalen right now is a high school star playing in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, he's a quarterback, uh, which in Texas is, is very, you know. Doesn't that, get much better than that in high school. Yes. And when he was in middle school, his team decided that they were going to take a knee. 
and his entire middle school team, the Beaumont Bulls. <laughs> and when they took a knee, and these are middle school kids, they just saw what Kaepernick did. They're like, well, we also hate racism. They were in a community where there had been racist incidents. One town over was the headquarters of the KKK in the region. So they decided to take a knee. And the result was the people who ran the league were so freaked out. They not only canceled Jalen's team, but they canceled the entire league. I mean, talk about <laughs> cancel culture. Whoa. And, and it, what's, what's so interesting about that to me is, you know, they, you can buy a T-shirt just about anywhere in Texas that says the big three, faith, family, and football. Yeah. And yet what you see is that there's actually a big four. And the big four, number four, is white supremacy. <laughs> and that was actually number one, because if it was really just about football, family, and faith, you'd let the kids play. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, that was too much for them. So, so the team and the league got completely scuttled. But what happened after that was really amazing, uh, really amazing. Um, it, because we live in this viral age of social media, uh, this small town where this injustice took place it somehow got the ear of some NFL players and they wrote some checks and underwrote the creation led by the parents of these kids of an entirely new league <laughs> for Beaumont and for the kids. And it's, it's a remarkable story of solidarity. It's also a remarkable to me, revelatory story about courage in the face of repression. And my goodness, I think a lot of these stories, John, are like the canary in the coal mine for everything we're dealing with in 2021. I mean, think about that story I just told you about the canceling of the Beaumont Bulls in Texas five years ago. And now think about Texas today, where they're canceling transgender athletes, they're canceling voting rights, yeah. uh, they're canceling re women's reproductive rights. And I think that showed like the, the very autocratic, very repressive nature of the Texas Republican Party and frankly, like the, the out to lunch nature of the Texas Republican Party. It was it was all on display if people had cared to look in Beaumont, Texas. And there's one more uh, story of high school football I, I want you to tell. And that's a story about Minneapolis, Minneapolis North uh, High School. This was a city, of course, where Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. But four years before that, the football team was taking a knee and went on to win the championship. It actually brought the team together. I mean, and you know, that story meant a great deal to me, John, because I, I went to McAllister College uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so even before the murder of George Floyd, my eyes were very much on Minneapolis, St. Paul with regards to taking a knee and um, how it affected people. And, you know, part of doing that story was also, I think, really important because people think of Minnesota as a blue state. Yeah. People think of it as Minnesota nice is a phrase I'm sure you're very familiar with. Oh, yeah. And one you embody, sir. So let me say that. <laughs> Thank you. But but it, it's it's there's also an underbelly. And uh, in the underbelly, there's there's a lot of racism. And, and that really came out when these young people took a knee. And that's one of the things I wanted to show with this book is that it really doesn't matter red state, blue state, like th these kinds of ways of understanding the country actually aren't entirely helpful. There may be helpful a little bit, but not really, especially not in an era of profound gerrymandering and, and disproportionate representation. Like what, what you have instead in this country is I think a battle between 
let's call it Donald Trump's America and let's call it Colin Kaepernick's America. Yeah. It's like people, people who believe that the only response to the fact that we have a young generation that's more demographically diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States, the only response is repression. While there's another America that says, no, this is the future. We need to actually support these young people as they try to shape their world. And I think that that is the number one fissure. So when people say to me, Colin Kaepernick polarized America, I always say, what are you talking about? Racism and inequality has polarized America, not Colin Kaepernick. He's like the person pointing at the burning building and saying that there's a fire. Your stories about high school football players are totally great. And you have a lot of amazing stories about high school cheerleaders, cheerleaders leading protests against police racism. What's your favorite of those? Well, first, let me just say, like, I knew I couldn't tell every story of people who took a knee because there's so many. So I wanted what I told to be representative of what took place in the country as a whole. So that's why there's so many stories of women athletes and male athletes, because that's representative of what took place. Similarly, cheerleaders uh, really did step up at this moment. And in one of the stories I tell, I mean, it's in uh, a place called Storm Lake, Iowa. I mean, this is Steve King country. Uh, and at a school out there in Storm Lake, uh, this, this incredible young woman, um, she made the decision to take a knee as well as start the school's first black student union. And this caused all kinds of waves at her school. And eventually she felt she had to leave the school. I mean, she was effectively forced out of the school. And I think these are the kinds of stories that I want to tell uh, because people have to know that there were consequences. And let's talk about uh, some of the women athletes in your, your college chapter is a huge chapter. I think my favorite stories there are about the women athletes. For example, the UC Santa Barbara women's basketball team. This is a division one team, six black players. Tell us about them. Well, one of them, of course, was the woman I, I interviewed for the book. Her name was Mikhail uh, Wright. And uh, Mikhail told me this story. And it's just, to me, this is a great story of the knee itself. One of the things you see that's a common thread in a lot of these tales is that when these players talk about taking a knee, uh, the result can be really, really volcanic at the level of the administrative level. Yeah. And sometimes you feel like these administrators, whether we're talking about principals or athletic directors or school presidents, sometimes, or coaches as well, of course, sometimes you feel like it's not even that they're against what the aims are of the movement. But like you said, at the start of this interview, they occupy that sort of middle mushy space. And in that middle mushy space, you've got something <laughs> that where they're so terrified of what people taking that knee will provoke among boosters, among alumni, among parents. And so they try to effectively, it's so interesting, like they try to bribe the kids, not with money, but with protest alternatives. So they say things like, how about we make you Black Lives Matter t-shirts and you could wear those? Or how about we make you some black sashes and you can wear those? How about you just hold hands or link arms during the anthem? But the terror about taking that knee is something that was experienced in Santa Barbara. And Mikhail, who I spoke with at length about it, uh, she told me that years later, like when George Floyd was killed and you had the largest protests in the history of the United States, her coach sent her this apology letter. 
mm. uh, about like not understanding what uh, had taken place and feeling like she understood more then. But, you know, in a, a, in a lot of cases, you know, there's there are people who are really white people, to be clear, who are finally reckoning with what it means to be black or brown in this country is as one person said to me, I believe her name was Alyssa Parker, one of the stories in the book. She said, if I made you feel uncomfortable by taking a knee for two minutes, well, now you know how I feel every day in this community. And I want to talk about Major League Baseball very much on our minds here in uh, Los Angeles uh, this week. Baseball, where the players and the owners are the most conservative of all uh, of all sports and where the proportion of African-Americans is smallest. Lots of people of color from the Caribbean and Latin America in baseball, but very few black people born in the USA. The Dodgers, of course, first to integrate Major League Baseball, famously Jackie Robinson, 1947. They now have an African-American manager, Dave Roberts, and an African-American superstar, Mookie Betts, who's from Nashville. Mookie famously took a knee during the playing of the national anthem at the season opener in 2020. But Mookie was the only Dodger to take a knee. Uh, But... Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy, who are white players, stood on either side of him with a hand on Mookie's shoulders, showing solidarity. Now, that was good, but I had to wonder, why didn't they take a knee too? Isn't racism, isn't the problem really the white people, not the black people? So let's talk for a minute about about baseball, about the Dodgers, about Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy and the whole picture that that shows. Yeah, I mean, it shows that uh, we need better anti-racist strategy among white people, which is why I interviewed several white people who had taken a knee in the book and one who just raised her fist and now feels guilt that she didn't take the step of taking a knee. And I just find that so fascinating that everybody understands. It's so ubiquitous and universalized at this point that everybody understands that if you take a knee, you are making a statement. You are crossing a Rubicon. And there's really no going back at that point. And I think for white folks, it's like they have to realize that there's no risk in putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, but there is risk in taking that knee. And the risk, I wish this wasn't the case, John, but it's the risk that's what gives the protest power. In the end, you turned to another well-known sports activist, John Carlos, and asked him what he thought about everything that's happened after Colin Kaepernick engaged in his silent protest. Yeah, I mean, John Carlos, somebody who raised his fist in 1968 at the Olympics. I mean, he had something very important to say. Like he, he I was talking to him amidst the fires of the of the George Floyd demonstrations. And 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 he said to me, we are the positive force. The young generation is going to show us the way. We need to figure out how to support them organizationally, politically, ideologically. Like we, we have to be able to support them as they try to build this new world. And to hear that from John Carlos, someone who's been part of the struggle for over 50 years, I mean, that's something I'm going to keep with me the rest of my life. Dave Zyron, his wonderful new book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Dave, thanks so much for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, John.
That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music